but no great business was built on practicality because you can't build a, a business a pioneering business with a practical mindset because the, 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 you just think about what practicality is it's basically how society has told us things should work and us buying into that so look left and right before you cross a road because otherwise you get hit by a car and the people who don't you know die that's very practical to look left and right the other way is well build a bridge and then I don't have to look left and right so the practical society's uh, answer to looking left and right before you cross a, a road is irrelevant if I'm talking about a, a bridge and and what we are as pioneers and entrepreneurs is we are bridge builders we're building these new ways of getting to a different reality so we don't need to look left and right we just have to move forward Alon has been assisting entrepreneurs for almost 20 years he and his team have accelerated the success of over 13,000 businesses during this period. And this Blue Heart series is a distillation of his views and insights into characteristics that he believes set successful entrepreneurs apart from the rest. In this final episode, we discuss optimism. And I don't mind admitting that at the beginning of this conversation, I wasn't altogether convinced that Alon was going to be able to convert me to his way of thinking on this particular characteristic. This was, of course, my superficial view and understanding of optimism speaking. It's a discussion rich with insight and wisdom, true stories and real experiences, and I hope you take from it as much as I did. Let's start with the statistics. So the often quoted number is 96% of small businesses won't make 10 years. But a more interesting piece of statistics comes from Brad and Dunn Street, where they show that 90% of businesses that shut down actually shut down voluntarily. They are not put into liquidation. They just wake up one morning and say, I can't do it anymore. So if you think about that a little bit more, when do we give up? We give up when we think our future is worse than our present. We give up when we don't believe there will be a better future. That is when we give up. If we think there is a brighter future, if we carry on on this path, we will be more likely to persist. So for me, that is a great indicator of why we should care about hope and why we should care about somebody being optimistic. Because if you're optimistic, you're less likely as an entrepreneur to actually give up. So if you are in a positive state, you're more likely to see opportunity. If you are in a optimistic state, you are more likely to have the energy to take advantage of these opportunities. For me, this is a, a statistical thing. I don't think it's a scientific thing. I think it's a, a statistical thing in the sense that you're positive, you're going to push through. You're negative, you hit a bump, you're likely to give up. And the stats show that we mostly give up as entrepreneurs. During this conversation, we take a deep dive into the value of optimism. You're going to hear how optimism is a precursor to movement generation and how this enables resource creation, asset identification and exploding. Yes, I said exploding. You're going to have to listen to find out what that means. And you'll also find out how optimism allows us to more fully reframe situations, develop well-constructed scenarios, and how it helps us to survive the evidence void. 
Let's begin with this. I don't think optimism should stand alone. It should come with pragmatism, which is maybe its negative first cousin. It can come with experience, which is another cousin. It can come with a whole bunch of other related emotions or points of view or views of the world. And it can create the tension between them so that they don't dominate. Even in a partnership where you have two partners, it's really not good if you've got a partner that's all positive and the other partner is always positive. It's good to have the balance in there. So optimism is actually healthier when it comes with one of its inverted commas first cousins that come along to bring a more three-dimensional perspective. But when pragmatism comes along by itself, I think it is incredibly dangerous because then you look at it and say, well, it can't be done. So there's no space to actually find a way because there's this absolute knowledge that it can't be done. I'm pragmatic. And uh, those people, I, I think, find it very hard to build businesses, especially in the early years when there's so much faith and optimism required because there's so little evidence that is available around whether you're going to succeed or not. So my personal story, and this is in, in my book as well, is when I started my entrepreneurial journey, I had a mentor. And I must say my mentor was quite an optimistic guy. And he gave me basically an open checkbook. Go and come up with any business you like and I'll back you. Which sounds wonderful, except if you don't know what you want to do and you don't know what you're good at, particularly if you're young, it's a much harder thing to do if you're actually serious. So long story short, I came up with a business called the New York Sausage Factory, which was a fast food operation selling hot dogs. And there were 12 different types of hot dogs. And I came up with this idea. It was called the New York Sausage Factory. The, my byline or my tagline was called the United Tastes of America. I thought I was very clever. 12 different types of hot dogs. You take an English banger, put it in a bun, wrap it in New York Times, put an English flag in it and call it in English. You take a, a Frankfurter, you put a German flag, call it German and a Burrowstra, all South African, and so on and so forth. And we had these 12 different types of hot dogs. Off I go to my mentor and I go, ta-da, this is the big idea. He says, I like the idea, but I want you to go off to Negative Ned and I want you to pitch it to him. Who's Negative Ned? Negative Ned happens to be an accountant and I happen to be not an accountant and happened to have failed accounts one twice at Varsity. So my view was that he knew stuff and I didn't. Anyway, so I pitched to this guy and I go, da-da, United Tastes of America, New York Sausage Factory, 12 different types of hot dogs. And this is the big idea. He says, this business will never make money. So I convinced my mentor, despite negative Ned, his view and why he showed me pragmatically why it would never make money. He showed me it wouldn't. I convinced my mentor to back me. I opened the business and the business doesn't make money. Negative Ned was right. It takes me a long time to actually, in my mind, realize that I failed. It takes me six months of persisting through opening for evening trade, opening for breakfast trade, and just whatever I did, seven days a week, I could not make this business make money. I actually 
worked so hard, I actually put myself in hospital. I just was exhausted. And I actually passed out while I was driving. That's how bad it was. So I was hell-bent on proving him wrong. But eventually I couldn't but face the facts. So off I go to my mentor and I say to him, I failed and I'll pay you back. And he says, I didn't back the business, I backed you. And if you walk out the door now, you've failed. But right now, the business has failed. What would you do differently? And I told him, I actually knew what to do. But somehow I felt constricted within it. I said, I changed the menu, the venue, which was a big part of the problem, the pricing and everything I'd learned from that first foray into the fast food space. And he said, I'll back you again. But this time I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to give you people. And one of those people I'm going to give you to help you is negative net. And with that counterbalance, with the pragmatism and the positive, the both, I opened my second store and that became a success. So if you analyze that story from an optimism point of view and from, let's call it a pragmatism point of view, which negative Ned was. A negative Ned is in every entrepreneur's story. Every entrepreneur's got that individual in their life. Sometimes we married to those people. Sometimes they're a parent. Sometimes they're a friend. But they always exist. When you marry the two, you get, I think, a healthy balance. Because entrepreneurs, by definition, like to bullshit themselves about the future. And, and that's part of what makes us good, is that we can actually conjure up a positive picture of the future. But very often it lacks the experience, which I'll come to just now. And it certainly lacks the pragmatism, which somebody else can bring. So when we opened up the New York Sausage Factory, the second time, it worked. So he was wrong, but I was wrong too. But combined, we were right. And if you look now in Racecorp, what I've got here is I've got a partner who for all intents and purposes is negative Ned. His first answer that comes out of his mouth is no. And then slowly there's this wrestle between this pragmatism and this future thinking that brings us to a middle path. Sometimes it's not in the middle. Sometimes it's more toward him. Sometimes it's more toward me. But it's never just me or never just him. And in that healthy balance between the two, we've been able to navigate a positive path for Racecorp. So I said I was going to come back to experience. Experience is a very similar thing to pragmatism. Experience is all the things that happen to you that teach you the lessons about where you were wrong in the past. I've got a gray beard here, I've got gray hair, and all those are the lessons that I've learned over the years. Now I can very often balance that with my optimism, and I can balance the combination myself and almost hold my partner's voice in my head and have that whole debate in my head before I actually go and verbalize it. And so the quality of thinking is far better when you can hold two. So if you don't have the experience, find somebody who's pragmatic or somebody with the experience. If you've got the experience, then hold both positive and negative in your head, optimistic and the pragmatism. And maybe it's not fair to say that pragmatism is negative. It's just a counterbalance to optimism. 
This makes me feel good about myself because while I like to think that I have an optimist somewhere deep inside, this inner optimist is buried under layers and layers of experience that says I need to be practical and pragmatic before being optimistic. There have even been times where I have been critical of myself for not being as optimistic as I think I should be. And this is not hard to do and feel when society so often praises certain characteristics and denounces others. So it's actually about a healthy balance, and a balance one must find and nurture if it doesn't exist. I'm even tempted to say that most, if not all of us, are unbalanced. And it's only after many years of engaging directly with the other, much like Alon and his business partner did, that we find this balance. The aphorism, only that which is the other gives us fully unto ourselves, comes to mind. Okay, to this point in the podcast, we've mostly hung about on the surface of the subject. So it's time to go deeper. The connection between optimism is with urgency. There's a connection between the two. If there is no urgency, basically it's a proxy for moving forward. If there is no optimism, it's a proxy for not moving forward too. They're both very similar. And for me, the importance of moving forward is the opportunity to find new resources, to learn, to have more lucky events. And so we have more opportunity to create a better future with more of these resources that we might create. If we stay where we are, we have no opportunity to create new resources and therefore our options are pretty much the same as they were a day before, um, a week before. So by moving forward, it's the exposure and the potential to learn, to build, to meet new people, new, see new things that creates a better future. So I'll give you a, a really practical example of this in a weird, obscure way. So also part of my story is that I used to work at a vehicle security business. The business was in trouble. We hadn't paid rent. We hadn't paid salaries. Things were really, really bad. And it was really, for me, the end of the road. And I had all these staff looking at me who hadn't been paid. We even had these people sitting in our reception who would not re refuse to move without getting paid. You know, that was like a real, real heavy situation. At 40 employees, I thought it was the end. And the reason we had got into that trouble was the fact that we were developing some tech. And of course, we had underestimated how long it would take and how expensive it would be, and we ran out of cash. And so we had dragged everyone for as long as we could, and finally the chickens came home to roost in my reception. And a friend of the family called me up while this was happening and said, come for lunch. And we sat at lunch, and I was really praying that he would pay because I couldn't afford to pay for lunch. And he asked me all sorts of questions about the business, and I said the business was stuffed, and I was really, really feeling quite demotivated. And he said to me, you know, just tell me more about the tech. And I explained to him about the tech, but I said, look, you know, it's really, really over. Like, it doesn't matter. No, no, don't worry. That's just a cash flow issue. Just tell me about the tech. And he kept asking about the technology. And he said, this is so exciting. This has got huge potential. And at the beginning of lunch, I was negative. I was pragmatic. I was depressed. It was over. At the end of lunch, 
I thought, well, maybe it just is a cash flow issue. I hadn't like, for me, it was like life and death. I hadn't seen it. He said, why don't you just go to another funder and look for other funding? Because your investors won't fund again, but maybe others will. So I said, you think so? He said, yeah, just that's amazing tech. And because I had taken the action I had been pushed through, I was exposed to that particular event, lucky event, very lucky interaction. Came back from lunch, started calling up a whole bunch of people, got through to somebody that afternoon, told them what about what we were doing, said, come see me. We were based in Durban at the time. I got on a plane, came to see the individual the next morning, pitched my business, and this is a true story. I pitched my business in the morning. I got an answer at 11 o'clock in the morning that they had valued the business at 10 million rand and they would purchase 30% for 3 million rand. The day before morning, business was worth zero in my mind. The following day, it was worth 10 million rand. This was many years ago. But the, the fact that I'd had that opportunistic interaction because I kept moving forward, I said yes. I move forward allowed me to change a future scenario. Ah, okay. So you do get people we might refer to as optimists that are always trying to be positive and cheerful. But then it seems you also get another type of individual, the one that uses their optimistic nature or the learned need for an optimistic outlook to drive them forward in search of new resources and new developments. This act of searching is what seems to separate someone that is perpetually positive from someone that is optimistic. To find or train the latter is the trick. I'm beginning to feel much more optimistic about this podcast about optimism. Let's see if we can uncover some additional resources. So I've spoken about assets quite a bit. And if you remember in our prior podcast, I've spoken to you about the fact that we combine different competencies to create USP to create authentic difference in the market. It's about the combination of different things that creates different possibilities. When you are in an optimistic state, my experience is that you see assets differently. So my personal story here around this as a real example of what happened to me in the beginning of RaceCorp was we weren't making money. I was, we were really, really battling. And I was in one of those, am I bullshitting myself moments. My wife was eight and a half months pregnant. And I said to her, I've got to get away and think. I have to find a way out of this. And I got into a car. I drove to a place called Sedgefield. I'd say I I rented, but I didn't pay for it. A friend of mine's mom's place there. And I went there with this view that I was going to come up with all the answers. And I sat there. And I put a chair uh, looking against the wall. I brought a whole bunch of post-it notes. And I started this exercise, which was to start unpacking all my assets. I was desperate. So I said, well, what do I have? So I've got a car, car, stick it on the wall. You know, I've got a rented home, rented home. I've got you know, cell phone, and I started like, putting all these quite practical things on, onto the wall. And then I said, what else do I have? I've got certain skills. So I said, what skills do I have? I've got entrepreneurial knowledge, even though I felt like quite a 
imposter at the time. I've got, I had a business in Durban called Meriton Sanders. They were my client. I was a shareholder in that business. They were an asset. Uh, and I had also a whole bunch of clients. They were assets. And then I started thinking, well, what about all the people who've said no to me? What I call the MFCs, the Middle Finger Club. And I started putting these post-it notes of everyone who had rejected me. So, well, let me put them up there too. And I started building up on this wall over 200 different assets that I had. And I sat there staring at these and trying to combine them in different ways. And I was staring and staring and saying, if I add that to that to that, that to that to that, that to that to that, and just like sitting there, I needed maybe a little bit of... um, encouragement maybe there was a glass of wine involved and i started seeing more and more combinations and then i came up with the idea of let me start flipping these into making the opposite because if there's one side there's another side that's how i got to the mfc's if i said i've got clients i've got people who are non-clients or potential clients so they know about me but they didn't buy from me but what happens if i take this ad agency as my client and I flip it around and me be their client. And then what happens if I take my verbal knowledge and I'm able to write it? And out of that came a thing called Entrepreneur's Inspiration Pack. I said, okay, the idea is that I've created this pack called an Inspiration Pack. It's 52 inspirations broken down into clubs, which was networking, It's diamonds, which is lateral thinking exercises. Hearts, which is passion. And then spades, which is what work you need to do. And I created this idea. I phoned up the ad agency and I said, would you go and risk around putting this together as a mock-up? And then I phoned up one of the people who had rejected me, who had told me that that what I told to them originally was too exclusive and too expensive. And I phoned the same woman back and I said, If I come to you with something that's a lot cheaper, can spread it far more broadly, would you meet with me? And she said, absolutely. Made up the mock-up, went to see her. She loved it. And she bought 10,000 packs. And that pulled me out of my dwang. Now, the point there is that I was able to combine these different assets to create a better future. When you don't want to see a better future, when you don't see those assets as they are, if you don't explode them into all those different minutiae of what they are and how they can recombine, I think you have less opportunities for future scenarios. And for me, optimism is about better future scenarios. Here are a few more questions around assets and resources. When is an asset really an asset? What assets do entrepreneurs miss or overlook on an ongoing basis? And what does Elon mean when he talks about exploding assets? I think the big issue is what you don't see as assets. So processes for me are assets. As an example, I have a selection process that's an asset because I can reuse it for different things. I could say, what else could I use the same process for? What else could I select for? Processes are probably the, the one asset that most entrepreneurs miss. The other asset which people miss out is actually 
their network and they don't actually analyze their network properly. I remember our second business was a company called Addiction. And my partner there, we were you know, trying to grow this business and we were looking for clients. And then out of the blue, she says her brother works at one of the big banks heading up marketing. Now, that might be nepotistic, if that's a word. But I said, why didn't you ever mention this? I she goes, I never thought of that. So I said, but even if they don't buy, he will know a whole bunch of people in his network that we can go to. So we went to see him and he said, look, I can't buy from you. I'm not, you know, but I can certainly refer you to, and he just like basically wrote down a list. And then I pushed him. I said, do you mind sending an email and making the introduction for us? They said, sure. And he, I think he sent about 12 or 14 different emails. It was the same email, just he changed the name. We sent them out, copied us on all the emails, and we went to see the 14. And of the 14, we closed seven seven new clients it was sitting right in front of us because she hadn't interpreted her brother as part of her network and often i see that in the in in our first interactions with entrepreneurs particularly the ones where we take equity in where we partner with them i have this thing called a rolodex day and i sit there and i say to them tell me about your family in front of everyone so my brother does this my mother does this my sister does this and i push them and somebody says ah i can use that I say to the entrepreneur themselves, but you can use that too. You know, they're just not seeing it that way. So that's another big mistake that entrepreneurs make is not seeing their family and friends as, as assets. And I think that's a partly about this concept of am I abusing that? Is it inauthentic? But um, we've all heard the saying, it's not what you know. The other omission in terms of assets is our personal skills. And basically being able to dissect our, our personal skills into these micro skills that we, we might have. For example, I can talk because I was in a play at school. I can act. I can write. I can do all these different things. And I think a big part of that is perhaps our we don't want to see ourselves as great. We don't want hubris to set in. Don't show off. This is sort of what goes on in your head. And so we don't go back to look at ourselves and what skills do I, I have. If you are able to then explode your, your skills and say, this is what I can do and this is what I have done, which is part of my experience because that means I can do it, then I can use those in combination with what the other assets are. So the, in the example before I spoke about, I said, if I can speak about entrepreneurship I also know how to write if therefore I can write about entrepreneurship and so I did that it was looking at my capability what is more important and what I try and train entrepreneurs is is around the fact that once we label an asset very much we have allocated a utility to it so I take a glass what is a glass we drink from a glass we drink liquids from a glass but glass isn't a glass a glass is also if I break it, it's a weapon. If I'm bare grills, I can start a fire with it. I can use it as a vase. I can use it as a rolling pin. I can use it as a cookie cutter. I can use it for a whole bunch of other things. The problem is, is that when we have labeled assets, 
the brain then actually allocates the utility or that society has given to it. And so we are unable to actually take full advantage of all the different assets that can be exploded out of a single asset through changing its utility. I suppose the way to think about it is like an atom. When you split the atom, it creates so much energy. When you are able to see an asset and explode it into all its possibilities and not just what society has told us it can do, then a huge amount of energy is released from that and a huge amount of possibility is released from that. And that explosion together with another explosion together with another explosion is effectively what a, a nuclear explosion really is, is all these atoms releasing all their, their energy. And really what happens is when you're able to explode an asset, you're able to release energy that was not available to you prior to that in order to create a better future. Another problem that may arise when in an optimistic frame of mind is that there suddenly are too many options, too many resources and too many possibilities. So in a sea of possibility, the only thing that will keep you moving forward because you can basically just wander about going from opportunity to opportunity to opportunity, the only thing is your strategy. If you haven't created clarity as to what your end point is, where you want to go, as they say, any path will take you there. And in a sea of opportunity, well, everything will take you there. But for me, what I always do when in a set of possibilities, and this is actually the basis of strategy, is choice. And I can choose this possibility or that possibility, this option or that option, this future or that future. Which do I choose? And the right choice is the one that resonates with, with your strategy, which you've defined, or takes you to your endpoint, the way you want to go, the where. And most people haven't got a where to. They don't have that. They meander through life with a notion of what they want. I want to be happy. I want to be rich. Um, all these platitudes which make you feel nice, but actually when you ask what does that mean, you cannot define it. And I... I'm very, very specific about my future. I'm very specific about what wealth means to me. I'm very specific about what happiness means to me. I'm very specific about all those things. I'm also flexible on them, that I can move them. And we've spoken about flexibility in a previous podcast. So I'm flexible, but I still know I'm still defined. And in that definition, I then it makes it far easier for me to make a decision, yes or no. There's another aspect to optimism that Alon is especially passionate about. But before we get into that, let's do a little bit of a recap. First and foremost, no great business was ever built on practicality. We are bridge builders. Second, optimism is the fuel that gets us through those moments when we want to give up. Third, optimism is truly maximized when paired with its cousins like pragmatism. Fourth, Rather than describing a static state, optimism is in actuality a position from which proactive effort is set in motion. This effort is the active searching out of new resources and opportunities. A fifth point, in an optimistic condition, we are much more likely to take full advantage of all assets at our disposal. And a sixth, 
Combining and exploding assets produces energy that propels us into a new and better future. What have you taken from this conversation so far? We'd love to hear the thoughts and ideas this discussion is inspiring. Perhaps you also have a question or two. Feel free to share or ask these on your favorite social media platform using the hashtag BlueHeartSeries. We'll pick it up there and who knows, maybe we even ask you to join us in studio to dig into your thinking. Here's that other point that Alon is especially passionate about. This is a wonderful tool that I train entrepreneurs on how to actually authentically, and underlying the word authentically, reframe a situation. So it's not like, ah, there will always be a silver lining. There's a silver lining. Oh, you know, tomorrow will be better. It's not that kind of uh, naughty, I'm all happy kind of uh, response. It's not what it is. It's authentically being able to reframe the situation. The question you ask is a simple question. If in a year I look back at this moment and this were a positive thing, why would that be? And then you think about in a really, really, really bad situation, I got fired or I just lost my biggest client or my staff walked out on me, whatever the case may be, something really dramatic that's happened where you think, well, this is like really, really bad. The right question to ask is if in a year's time I look back at this moment and I say that was the best thing that happened to me, why would that be? And that starts to create a different reality in your mind. And then you go, okay, well, my staff all left me. Well, that's when I learned to become a better manager. Or they left me, and as a result, I had to reinvent myself, and I went on a different path with a new, a different product. What's that other product? Or I lost my biggest client. Now, I never allow any client to be more than 20% of my income. It taught me that lesson. So in every situation, you, it's about authentically reframing. It doesn't take away pain. It's a very important statement. It doesn't take away the pain, but it gives you the momentum to move forward. Because when you answer that question, it gives you where you should go. So my example of no client should ever be more than 20%. If that's what happened when you lost your big client, okay, I need lots and lots of clients now, smaller clients. Who are these smaller clients that I need to pursue? What's my value proposition to them? I start a new path. Now I know what to do. In my example of all my staff leading, leaving and because I'm a terrible manager or terrible leader, well, maybe I need now to have a partner who's a little bit more EQ than I, I have or Maybe I need to go and read up more about becoming a leader or go to self-reflect and go on some sort of journey about who I am as a leader. And because of that, I come back as a better leader. And so that sets me off a, a different path. But by asking that question, it, it gives you the answer which direction to go. And as we've said time and time again in this podcast, optimism and action are completely related. You cannot separate the two. Here's a practical, real-life example of authentic reframing. My parents had an umbrella factory. They made umbrellas. And for reasons I won't go into right now, they had a massive order from a big chain. And when all the frames and all the fabric was on the water, coming from Taiwan, the order was cancelled. It was a massive order for a single type of 
umbrella. Under normal circumstances, the frames would arrive, the fabric would arrive, they would cut the fabric into panels, they would sew them together, add them to the frame, put on a handle, put them in a box and sell them to the chain, who would put them on a display. But because they had all this fabric of a, one particular color, and because they had one particular frame, which were, now if they didn't sell them, it would have basically bankrupted them. So my father had to go and uh, get on the road and go to all these smaller, what they call independents, like literally from little dorpy to little dorpy and, and go and sell. The second thing that it taught them was to say, well, what do we do with all this fabric? We can't just keep selling black umbrellas. So let's combine them with different colors. So we could do a, a black and a red and a black and a yellow and a black and a this. And they had created a whole a range of two-tone. And then they said, well, what else could we do with the frame? And so the frame, we could cut down the frame. If we put it into a jig, we could cut the frame so it could be a smaller umbrella. For ladies, it happened to be a men's umbrella. And so they created a new range of ladies' umbrellas. The combination of all those things and more meant that over time, they built a resilience in the market against a big competitor who was very strong in the chains, but was very vulnerable. But because they were now spread across a whole bunch of independents with a bigger range of umbrellas that were now far more fashion-orientated and, and novel, it, it was actually the beginning of their real success. By taking action, by reframing their situation literally, and the, the pun intended, deep, deep potential failure, when they look back, that was actually the seed of their success. Reframing is one thing, but it's a whole other story when nothing is happening. Nothing is going right. There is no evidence to support your decision and conviction. Listen to this insight from Alon. So we've spoken about the fact that to be optimistic, we need to see a better future. And what feeds it very much like if you have a visual of a Pac-Man game where you go and you eat all those little dots each one of those dots sort of energizes you to the next dot. But there's a space in between that where there's no evidence of the fact that you're on the right path. And that one might believe is faith, but I would rather say that it's about belief in yourself, that I know I'm on the right path. And you will hear many, many stories of entrepreneurs who, despite the lack of evidence, persisted till they got the next evidential point and most let's call it uh, mortal men or women would not have pushed through that much darkness or lack of feedback before they got there and our literature of entrepreneurs successful entrepreneurs is peppered with these stories and one of the things that that often messes with my head is the fact that you never know if it's literally tomorrow. And I could have waited for 99 days and given up on the 99th day and on the 100th it would have appeared. And that really can mess with your head because the counter to that is that I'm deluding myself and you know I'm bashing my head against the wall. All the evidence is there that there's blood, that this is not working. And I'm looking at the lack of evidence, but really there's lots of evidence for me that I'm wrong. 
And how do you reconcile that? And that to me is a self-belief thing. It's about believing in yourself and believing that the way that you've basically interpreted all these dots and the momentum that you have is that it appears dark now, but that light will appear, that evidence will appear. We went through five years and two months of not making a profit. First of all, everyone said to me, what is it that you do? And because we were pretty much pioneering in the space in South Africa, no one understood it. So the banks wouldn't fund me. Everyone didn't get it. So they were trying to convince me to take a job. And what was worse was that everyone around me seemed to be becoming very successful. And I was in the state where I kept borrowing more and more money. You know, the the normal friends, fools, and family, you know, that's where I started off, and credit cards. And got myself into massive, massive, massive debt. And even my partner at the time kept walking into the, my office and saying, are you sure? <laughs> and I'd say, I'm sure. It'll happen. It'll happen. And then one deal happened. And that deal was that evidence. Everything changed from that deal. And I knew that that was the deal. And I got the check. It was a million and 24,000 rand. And I remember Colin, my partner, coming to my house and we ordered takeaway fish. I remember it was like we celebrated with takeaway fish. And I sat on the floor and I started to sob, like sob. Actually, I get quite emotional now when I speak about it, but absolutely sob because she it was like that self-belief that that five years and two months where all the evidence is pointing against you and that one piece of evidence was that there is a market that will buy this and i and it was significant and it turned us around and it was the pivotal moment but five years and two months is a long time At the very beginning of this conversation, my view of optimism was mostly pessimistic and limited to smiles and irrational positivity. This discussion has helped me understand both my position on the optimism scale and also how best to take advantage of this position. The quickest and possibly most effective way to do this would be through a strong partner or team. It's been a great discussion. And to end it all, here's a very practical final word from Alon. So if you're an extreme optimist, the likelihood is that you'll create these fantastical futures, these fantastical scenarios that are unlikely to happen. And therefore, you're going to spend a huge amount of time and energy pursuing something that's unlikely to actually materialize. If you're an extreme pragmatist, then you see all the risk in everything And you'll become completely immobilized by all the risk that you see around you. And so your option is to stay in your corner and not move at all. And so nothing happens. So on the one side, you do all sorts of futile actions. And on the other side, you take no action at all. And I think every entrepreneurial story has got that crucible moment where it looks like there's no way out. And always in that story, whether you watch the movie on Ray Kroc, the McDonald's story, the Steve Jobs story, every great success story, in the crucible, there is this opportunity that presents that changes everything. 
it's human as entrepreneurs like we see in those stories for us to get down and depressed where we see no future where we see all our efforts coming to naught where we see our humility and perhaps even deem ourselves as stupid and stubborn and not having listened to everyone who was around us telling us to find a job or whatever the case may be but in all those stories there's always another moment and that is because you pushed through because you met that person on the airplane because you watched that TV show it sparked an idea because you read a book because you took some level of action you created another data point and with that combination of that data point and everything else before was the thing that unlocked your future it is about moving forward and you have to keep the faith in that dark dark time to keep moving forward to find that other data point this concludes our final podcast of the six part blue heart series more podcasts are on their way including a brilliant series on strategy racecorp's deep dive event series and more to stay in the know go to racecorp.com and sign up for updates it's free and comes with a promise of zero spam in your inbox My name is Gareth Armstrong. Thanks for listening and Alon and I will be with you again in the next series.